Hello everybody, happy Wednesday. Welcome back to Aces Up the Sleeve. I'm Patty, co-hosting with the co-managing partner of Pocket Aces Racing, or PAR for a quick reference, Jared Shoemaker. And we are joined by the Pocket Aces Racing Racing Manager, Bloodstock Agent, the man with all the plans, Mr. Mark Wampler. How are you both doing today? I'm I doing am good. fantastic. <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing great. Couldn't be any better. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear that y'all are doing better than I am because Patty's broken right now. <laughs> what? Gotta stay away from those giant dogs, Patty. I know, I know. That's hard when I have one under my roof. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in this podcast, we're going to shed light on all things pocket aces. We're going to talk about the finer points of syndicate ownership. We're going to discuss what you all, the partners, have asked us to talk about. And then hopefully by the time we're done, you're a little enlightened, inspired, or entertained on the topics. And you feel that like you have gotten even more out of your tenure as a member of Team Pocket Aces Racing. Uh, so before we get to our sit down with Mark, we do have a few entries that we have to talk about this week. We have Air Marshal going June the 22nd in a Horseshoe Indianapolis main claimer. And Windy Lou Who going on June the 23rd in a Belterra Park claimer. Yeah, you know, um, Air Marshal, I hope we're finally going to get him on the turf and, and hopefully he, he takes to the turf like we've, uh, like we want him to. And, uh, you know, and, and hopefully as well, he's, uh, he's grown up a little bit and matured a little bit uh, mentally over the past few months. And he's ready to, to be, a, you know, show us a little bit more, you know. Um, and then uh, Wendy Lou, who basically we, we put her in that, that uh, $50,000 Ohio bread claiming race. Uh, you know, it's six and a half furlongs. So obviously, it's not the most ideal situation for her, but she needs to run uh, before we run her in the stakes race later in in July. Just uh, not getting this run into her would just be too long of a break between races. Uh, so we'll we'll get this run into her, and uh, you know, it, it looks like um, you know again it's six and a half furlongs, so that's not ideal, but. For a, for a change, she's going to get to walk right out of her stall and over to the starting gate. And, um, you know, she's won at sprints before, so hopefully she can uh, she can give us a good yeah. showing and, and head into that stakes race in, uh, in in good order. And we do have taken to the cleaners is currently entered, but um, uh, by the time this comes out, I believe she will have been scratched out of the, the race at uh, Canterbury for, and it looks like we're going to head down to Send her back down to Louisiana for the Opelousa Stakes uh, down there. At least that's uh, that's the last that I had. Mark, any changes to that? No, that's the plan. Uh, I, I, you know, I know what you're talking about with uh, uh, Wendy Lou, who it's not ideal, but I think she can be competitive in that race, especially if there's a uh, you know some real speed in front of her. She can chase down. Uh, still expect her to be, you know. Uh, forwardly placed but uh not hopefully out not out there wing dinging it and taken to the cleaners just not a really good setup for her in the lady canterbury and we think uh the you know i i've done a lot of research on the opalosis and it should be should should suit her a lot better I, i'm a lot more optimistic about that being the right spot for her Mark had, uh, you and Jared had even kind of mentioned in the emails that there was just so much speed in there that it wasn't shaping up to be something she was going to probably enjoy being a speed horse herself. So, yeah, all, all Ethan's had her whole career, and there's mm -hmm. just, um, you can't, you can't fight her. You know, mm -hmm. it's best to let her do what she wants to do. And, um, if we got in there, you know, you could say, well, just take back, you know, just, uh, let them have the lead, but, you know, horses aren't, 
race cars or machines. Um, it's easier said than done. So she needs to, that's what she wants to do. Uh, you look at almost every point of call and almost every race she's had, she's been on the lead. And as she's climbed up the, the ladder of, of class, it's just gotten to a point where if she gets in with a bunch of other speed horses, it's just going to be too much speed. And, um, and it's, it's just not a good setup for, her. um, like I say, on the research I've done with the Opalasas, when they ran it on the turf two years ago, it was off the turf and on the dirt last year, but two years ago, the half went in 47 and three or 47 and four, and that should be right in her wheelhouse. Good to know. So we will, so we'll let all the partners know once that, that change is made and the scratch goes out and all that good stuff. So we'll make sure everybody knows and is up to date on that. Um, so as I mentioned above in this, in this week's edition of the podcast, we are going to sit down with Mark. We're going to pick his brain a little bit. We're going to find out about his process for selecting, uh, young racing prospects, um, who taught him his ways. And he'll answer some of your submitted questions towards the end of the episode. And just judging kind of by, by our little outline here, it's going to be quite the episode. So grab yourself some water, grab a snack, get comfortable, everybody. Cause we have, we have a lot to talk about. And I think it's going to be a very interesting episode. So if you want to go ahead and get started, Mark, um, we just yeah. kind of, if you just want to do just a quick little brief intro for some of our listeners who maybe uh, don't quite know who you are just yet, but yeah. they will after this, um, then we can get rolling into however you want to get started. Yeah. Um, my name is Mark Wampler. I'm the current racing manager of Pocket Aces Racing. Started in the industry in... I forget if it was 94 or 95. It was, it was around then. I initially got in the industry because I wanted to be a trainer. Uh, spent two years uh, working with racehorses and really enjoyed that. But I, I eventually realized that it wasn't necessarily a lifestyle I was willing to commit to being a trainer. Uh, so I found other avenues, uh, got more into the business of, of racehorses. Or, or thoroughbred industry and um after i left the the racehorses and working you know on the ground with the racehorses i got a job with uh, equine analysis systems and that was really a big break for me basically this this company had all the best clients in the world got to see travel around the world dubai england france germany all over america seeing some of the best horses around and that was a great opportunity for me i felt like i, I learned a lot during that period kind of left them in the early 2000s 2000 2001 uh started my own bloodstock agency, had my own clients and did a lot of breeding consulting, commercial consulting. Around 2005, Jared and I decided to start a little racing syndicate. And um, that has just grown year by year by year to, to something where that really, I, I have, I have kept one, one and maybe, a, you know, a few other people I consult with, but one big client that I do their breeding stock work for and but mainly nowadays uh pocket aces racing has grown so big that that takes up most of my time which i'm very glad for i'm very thankful for it's uh, it's been a great ride and uh i enjoy it thoroughly so that's that's a very short <laughs> you know how i got from 
walking into the barn the first day to mucking stalls to 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 right here talking to you. Well, and we're glad you did because we wouldn't. I think we could argue that that we wouldn't have a pocket aces without you. So it, it would it would take me and Jared. So yeah, <laughs> have it have it going. So <laughs> and, and I would I'll take it back even a little bit further. I oh. I, I was there when the seeds were planted. Uh, when he became interested in being a, a trainer because Mark and I spent a lot of time out at Keeneland when um, when we were in college and, and I don't know about I don't know about Mark but I, I scheduled pretty much scheduled all of my classes to be done by noon so I could be out there <laughs> when we were in school so uh, I, I know though that uh, I, I remember I remember Mark and I talking about it when we were still in school him thinking about you know, how he, he might want to pursue a, a career with, uh, with racehorses, but, uh, he got, he did a little detour out to Colorado for a few yeah. months and then, uh, and then, uh, and well, then you came were, back. You, yeah, you were, you were really there. Cause we went to, I came back from Colorado to go to a breeder's cup and, uh, with you and your dad. Yep. And it, it, that is when I had made my decision. This is what I was going to pursue. I, and because I was out in Colorado, kind of shiftless, aimless, looking for something. What am I going to do with myself? And uh, it, it was that that day at the races that I had decided I'm going to be involved in the horse industry. I went back to Colorado because I had a few commitments. And then, but a couple months later, I came back. And uh, just I went. I remember I went to the July. This is back when Keeneland had a July sale. Uh, I went to the July Keeneland yearling sale and just went from barn to barn asking for a job. That's how, that's how I got started. There you go. I was there at the infancy. There you go. <laughs> yep, yep. All right. Well, Mark, tell us a little bit about you know we've had we get a lot of questions all the time about you know how how do you guys pick out this horse? Why this horse? Why that horse? You know, and just so just. Talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, the methodology, your process, how you learn and just, you know, just, just you know, give us the whole rundown. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to mostly shut up this, this episode and and I want, I want to hear from you. Okay. Well, um, I think where to start is who taught me how to evaluate horses. And it was Dr. David Lambert. And it goes back to what I was saying, you know, I, I had wanted to be a trainer. I was a groom. I was a swing groom. As I actually really never got past groom. I was a groom for two years at, at Calumet Farm. And then, you know, I was having feelings like, man, this, this might not be for me being a trainer, but I know I want to stay in the industry. And I was very, very, in hindsight, just very fortunate to get a job with David, Dr. David Lambert with Equine Analysis Systems. And he'd made a career and a lifetime of predictive analysis on, on thoroughbred racehorses. And he was, he was the smartest guy. I, he still is the smartest person I have ever encountered in my life. And he knows more about horses than, than anybody I um, have ever met. And he, to this day, he's still going, still uh, picking out great horses and doing all his good work. But he, he's, I felt like before I met him, everything I had learned was through osmosis. I just kind of picked, nobody told me what to do. Nobody was taking the effort to teach me. I just kind of picked up what I picked up. Dr. Lambert was the first one who made an effort to actually teach me. There was a little teacher in him. He had an academic background. He, he could have been somebody who was out, out helping to find a cure to cancer but he was applying all that knowledge to 
horses. And I was very, very fortunate to, to hook, to hook up with him, to get a job working for him. He taught me just about everything I know about looking, evaluating horses. And you got to know a little bit about him first. He, before he came to America and started Equine Analysis Systems, he was very involved with Robert Sankster at Sweatnam Stud and getting Sweatnam Stud up and going in Europe. He worked closely with Michael Dickinson there at Sweatnam Stud, and uh, the trainer was Peter Chappelheim, and they they won all kinds of races over there, the Derby, Grade Ones. Uh, they, you know, you can look it up, Sankster, Sweatnam Stud. They one of the most successful out, outfits out of Europe. Uh, they were closely conne- connected with Coolmore, and I, Dr. Lambert had learned a lot of how he evaluated horses. He had a million other things he did, like uh, gait analysis, heart scanning, lung evaluation. But he, you know, he needed to know how to look at a horse too. And he, he got a lot of that from Demi O'Byrne, who, you know, if you were around in the industry in the 80s and 90s, Demi was the man. He bought uh, any number of grade one winners. He... Uh, he was the go-to, he was the most high profile bloodstock agent probably in the world. And he had learned from Demi he had learned a lot from Demi anyway. And it's my understanding that the way that Demi learned, it, it was kind of known as the Irish way. And, and Demi had gotten it from Vincent O'Brien and Vincent O'Brien. If you, you know, if you if you took a poll of uh, people in the industry, who was the greatest horseman of the 20th century? I, I'm guessing that Vincent O'Brien would would, would be number one. Um, he's the guy who's responsible for bringing, you know, all that American, good American bloodstock in the eight, late 70s and 80s to Europe. And it kind of came to me through that, that line, you know, Vincent O'Brien, Demi, Dr. Lambert and, and Dr. Lambert taught me that way. And uh, that, that's kind of how I, I came upon, you know, the way, the way I look at horses and the way I was taught. And I always remember Dr. Lambert telling me I, I, I was so interested in, in, in learning how to evaluate horses. And I remember a conversation I was having with Dr. Lambert that he, he told me when things go sideways in the industry and if you're in it for a lifetime there'll be economic upturns downturns the bottom will fall out of the industry and it'll come back you know you'll live through four or five of these things and um but the people who survive are the people who know what a good horse looks like the middle middle management will get cut off the the owners stay all the middle management goes and the people who muck the stall stay but if you know how to find a good horse, you will always have a career in the industry. And, and it was shortly after I started working for him that we'd had that conversation. I'd said, this is where I'm going to make my focus, you know, because I'm sure he's right. You know, if you know what a good horse looks like, no matter the state of the industry, you're going to be okay. Um, And that's when I really made it my focus to start learning how to evaluate young racing prospects did you want me to go into 
the process. Yeah, for I, mean, the, the, yeah I think so. Just you, you mentioned the Irish way, and you know what is the Irish way? That's yeah. Because uh, yeah. I would say, you know, hell, I don't, I don't know what it is. I just know you go out. I, I just watch you go around there and look at horses, and you say, and I, I, one of them comes out, and I think, holy shit, that thing looks fantastic. And you say, yeah. nah, no good, no good. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about the, the yeah. Irish way. So that's that's how it's the Irish way because it it, it originated from Vincent O'Brien and kind of in a circuitous circuitous way found found its way to me through Dr. Lambert and. So the basis of the Irish way is the, the main concept is every horse that you shortlist or like, it ha the horse has to have, have size, scope, and strength. Those are the three basic elements. If the horse does not have size, scope, and strength, then you're not interested. Now, just because it has size, scope, and strength, that doesn't mean you're going to buy it, but that that just kind of means we can work from there. And the way we evaluate that is, and we try to look at every horse the same way every time. So it's repeatable. It's apples to apples, not apples to oranges. So you, you use the same technique every time. So when they come out, you want them to walk away from you. As they are walking away from you, you are evaluating how they're tracking through their hind limbs. Are they tracking wide? Are they tracking in a line? Are they cowhawk? You know, any other problems you can have with the hind end. And, but you want to see that high, those hind limbs and you want to pay attention to the hawks. Are they just moving forward in a straight line? And what you eventually need to be able to recognize too is you want to catch those front limbs as they're walking away from you too, because there's a lot of things that you can catch from, from the back angle, watching them walking away that you wouldn't as they walk at you. So you can see if they're really tied in behind their knee, you can see if they're offset crooked. Sometimes you can see that a lot more clearly as you're, you're kind of trying to, you've evaluated the hind limbs and then you're kind of looking past them to get a good and this is why you might have to do this two or three times if the horse isn't walking well but you're trying to catch that front the the back of the knee area and the back of the ankle area to see if there are any problems there and that's what you're doing as they're trying to as they're walking away from you as they're walking out towards you you're evaluating the front limbs a little more closely and i'm looking more at the knees and the ankles. Are they offset? Are they crooked? Do they have a banana shaped leg? Or again, are they tracking uh, straight? Is Are the limbs straight in a line? Does everything go from the elbow? You could just draw a line, straight line through the middle of the knee to the middle of the uh, sesamoid, the toe of the foot. Everything's moving in a straight line. That is ideal. You, you know, the reality of catching a perfect confirmation like that it isn't always there so you have to kind of learn what these horses can live with and that's kind of a, a graduate level thing but ideally you're looking for that good confirmation through the knees and the ankles and the feet as they're coming at you and, and feet are a big deal too as they're coming at you you could you know do they have blocky feet do they have mis mismatched feet uh things like that you want to see a good healthy foot 
uh, that are, are an exact pair, basically. And, and that's what you want to evaluate as they're coming at you. Uh, the next thing I'm going to do with them and, and what I was taught was I'm going to watch them walk from the side, kind of a confirmation, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to see them stood up from the side. I want to, I want to see them standing in a good confirmation pose. I need that hind leg perpendicular to the ground because if it isn't, it, the, the hind leg will lie to you. It will be a shape and a size that isn't accurate. So you want to make sure when you, you look, uh, stand them up and evaluate them uh, in a confirmation pose, they are in a traditional confirmation pose. You want that behind the left hind to be perpendicular to the ground. And you want them to be slightly um, one leg in front of the other in the, in the front limbs. So once I've got them stood properly, that's where I'm really looking for the size, scope, and strength. Does this, is this horse, I prefer a handy horse. And, and, and by size, that doesn't mean I'm looking for a great big or a great or a really small horse. I'm looking for the right size. And that is what is meant by size. Generally aren't looking, I'm not looking for great, big, heavy horses. I don't want ponyish horses. I'm looking for a handy horse. And um, just in, in, in for it to have good size, not too much size, not too little. Scope, that's going to be the ground they stand over. It's not basketball. It's not a height game. It's, it's, it's how much ground they cover. Uh, and that will, you can ex extrapolate that to how their stride is going to be, uh, how long their stride is going to be. I want to imagine the rider on their back I don't want to imagine he's got to lean way out to touch the horse's hip, and I don't want the hip right behind him either. I want the hip about an arm's length away behind him. And that, that's kind of a good judge of whether or not this horse is going to have scope. And then strength, it's kind of like size. It doesn't mean bunches of strength. It means the right amount of strength in the right places. I want to see a lot of strength in the forearm. I want to see a lot of strength in their gaskin. And I want to see in their hip as well. I don't want to see a lot of mass over their shoulder, over their front end. I want as much uh, muscle mass and strength as I can get in the hind end to help propel this horse forward and not mass over the front end to wear this horse down. They, they, I've always felt like up front, they just need enough strength, strength to, to stay sound, to hold up. You can't, you almost can't have enough strength behind if you're looking for an American traditional dirt horse. Now, if you get into, you're looking for a turf horse, you're changing things up a little bit, but for a, a traditional, if you were out trying to buy a derby horse, that's what you would want. You would want really strong Gaskins and uh, really strong hip, good strength through the forearms to, to help make sure the horse stays sound. And uh, so basically, I've, I've, I've stood them up in a confirmation pose, and I'm looking for size, scope, and strength. Just stood there, evaluate. If I don't think they have size, scope, and strength, they go back to the barn. But if I, I do think they have size, scope, and strength, we'll go on to the next step.
the next step would be watching this horse walk from the side. And, and you need to be careful that you're watching them walk from the side and you don't want the handler, the walker on the side you're on. They'll get in your way. You just, you want them on the offside. So I like to get inside of a circle and have them just walk around. And what I'm looking for there is athleticism. Do they have a short stabby walk behind? Uh, if they do, I don't like that. What I'm looking for is behind. I want to see this big stride. I want to see him reaching out uh, and covering as much ground in, as they can in front. In the front end, I want him to be almost cat-like, very agile, very loose. And a lot of that comes from and where a good place to see how good horses walk is to go to Keeneland and, and those big races, the grade ones, and just watch these horses walk around the tree, see how they do it, you know. And when I'm at the sale thinking I might buy a horse, I want to kind of imagine they're that's what I do in my own mind is I kind of imagine they're at a, you know, they're at Keeneland, they're under a tree, they're walking around before a race. Is this horse, does he look like he's going to, he, he could in two or three years be one of these horses at Keeneland that's getting ready for a big race. Um, and, and that's generally how they look. They, they're, they're athletic. They have big walks on. They are, like I say, cat-like up front. They, they know where they're, picking up and putting down their feet. And if, if the horse has kind of survived to this point, I put them on a short list and, uh, and say, if I look at a hundred horses a day, I will probably wind up with about 10 to 15 that wind up on the short, the short list that have kind of jumped through all my hoops. And that's, that's really important because you want to see all the shortlisted horses together at the same time. If you, if you've got enough time and sometimes at the sale, you run into situations where these horses are selling too fast um, and you, and you have to improvise, you know, you have to make do with your time. But ideally if we've got enough time, I like to look at all the shortlist horses together because what can happen is, as you look at, 50 bad horses in a row, one comes out that's okay, and you think it's a superstar just because everything else looks so bad, you know. So I like to look at my shortlisted horses that should be nice horses. I like to look at them all together and see who still is standing compared to each other. And that'll usually get rid of, you know, let's say I had, let's say I had 10, I'd probably have seven after that. If I had 15, I'd probably have 12, something like that, after I looked at them all together. That's a very, very brief, you know, of the Irish way, the way I was taught, the way I looked. That's kind of a, a brief synopsis. I'm, um, I'm evaluating the way they walk away, the way they come at me. I'm evaluating them from the side, and I, and I want to see how they walk, how they move. Uh, those are all the basic elements that I was taught and it can get as complicated as you want, you know, uh, over that, that is the basic structure. You know, you can, as you get further into this, as, as you buy more horses, as you find your, you've got a client that wants a sprinter, this horse wants a turf horse. You have to adjust 
the way you're looking. It's basically the same, but you have to adjust what you're looking for. But that is the basic framework. And, and, and those horses that, that pass through all that, pass through the shortlist, those are the ones we try to buy. Well, and you mentioned a little um, kind of on, on our, I was looking over it, and I, I don't know if you briefly touched on it, but you mentioned something about an ideal env- an ideal environment for evaluating. So is that just yes. like you obviously you don't want to look at a horse if it's standing on uneven ground, kind of that principle? Yeah, that, that, that's really what it's about. You know, what you will find if you were a bloodstock agent, sometimes you've got to go out and look at them in a field. And um, that is not ideal. You do your best, but you have to really, you either need to tell the person, I can't do it. I'm not willing to do it or just tell them you'll do your best. But that's, that's a good way to make a mistake and miss something. Ideally, if somebody um, asked me just for my opinion, I would go look at them in a field and tell them, this is what I think. You know, if somebody just wanted an analysis. If, if pocket aces was buying something, I would not do it that way. I would tell them they need to show me the horse in a certain way. And the way I need is really just a fair amount of flat ground. If I could create the perfect horse, the perfect place to uh, environment to look at horses, I would have no trees, no shade, because I don't like them walking in and out of shade. I don't like them stood up half in the shade, half out, you know, it, it breaks the lines, you know, I'd have no trees anywhere. I'd have a flat walking ring in a ring that went around in a circle and have it perfectly flat. And then I felt like I can do my best work. Another thing is part of the Irish way is doing it the same way every time, trying to replicate the environment to make your best judgment as best you can. And the problem you run into though, is you go to the sales at Keeneland, not all those barns are on a flat level surface. Some of them tail away from, some of them have, you can't get away from a tree. You know, there's tons of shade and the tents. And so you have to learn to adjust. But I, I, what, what I've done is when I'm, I can eliminate a horse fairly easily, but if I really like it, I'll make those people fine some some flat ground for me somewhere to look at these horses because it's too important you know i i i I don't want to make any mistakes so that's kind of what i do if if it's not an ideal situation at the sales i can i can um i can eliminate a lot of horses quick but if i find a horse i like i'm willing to put on the short list when we come back to look at just the short list horses I'm going to find a place, if we have to walk down to another barn, I'm going to find a place that is a good place to look at horse. So as we move on, you know, there's one there's one other piece of this process uh, that um, that we're going to talk about a little bit. And but I want to I want to just share something. And, you know, you say this. I hear I hear you say this all the time when you're looking at horses. Uh, it's a horse is only as good as its weakest link, you know, like a chain. You know, all the pieces have to fit together. Absolutely, man. That's a and you know, I think it's, it's it's really important to you know, for people to realize how difficult that is to find. Yeah, um, that's a good point, and I, I I touched on it, but not directly. It's I can I feel like I can eliminate horses fairly easily because a horse is like a chain. It's only as good 
as its weakest link. So the horse might be a superstar in every regard, but it's got clubby feet. Well, the tires are bad. It's like, in that respect, it is like a race car. I don't like to make race car analogies with horses, but it, it can be good in, in every way. But if it's got a bad set of wheels, I don't want to know about it. I'm not going to, I don't want to look at it, look at all its greatness and talk myself into something. You know, if it's, if it's got a banana leg, but is a superstar in every way, well, it, it might be, it might be the next secretariat, but it isn't going to hold up to training. It isn't going to stay sound a lot long enough to have a career. So I've, I, like I say, I've always used the chain analogy for that. Every link has to be strong because it, it, it could be a, a great chain that has every link forged out of steel, but if one of them's made out of paper mache, it's not going to work. So it's got to be the whole total package all right so let's let's uh let's dig into our favorite topic vet reports because right. uh you know they're important we, we we look at them uh they can be confusing um they uh, they cost <laughs> us no nay never yeah 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 um because uh, he didn't pass the vetting and we saw how that turned out yeah, yeah, great one winner. Uh, so, so let's uh, talk, yeah. talk a little bit about you know vet, vet reporting and vet work. What you know, what things scare you away immediately, and how yeah. what, what things can we live with? All, all of that stuff. So yeah, I've had to, I've had to really in in twenty years, I've had to really hone up on on vet issues, and I, I never realized I was going to need to know so much about it. In general, what I like to do is if I've got a horse, if we've got a horse that we want to buy, I really want to give it the vet. I want to have Dr. Bell go take a look at it and do his evaluation and just get a yes or no. And I, I've worked with Dr. Bell for so long now, we've got a great relationship. You know, I, a lot of vets I've worked with, they like, they'll tell you this is wrong, that's wrong, this wrong, and they won't tell you if you should buy it or not. You know, they'll just leave it up to you. And I'm like, well, I hired you to tell me, you know, and, and Dr. Dr. Bell is very good about that. He, he knows I want a yes or no answer. He knows I want to buy this horse. I'm here to buy horses. He knows very well on the vet reports what these horses can live with and, and, and what they can't. So I, I, I trust and he, and we've, I, we've never been burned by it. He's done a great job for us. I, having worked with him, I can tell you the things we tend to live with are mild sesamoiditis, mild to even moderate sesamoiditis. That is because we are end users. Sesamoiditis is it's going to be the inflammation of the soft tissue in the in the ankles and the connective tissue going up and down the ankles. That sesamoiditis is a big problem for the two-year-old pinhook guys because they need to press on these horses as soon as they buy them. There, there's no respite for those horses and any kind of sesamoiditis is a problem, but we are end users. And sometimes sesamoiditis can create opportunities for us where the pinhookers aren't going to be interested, but because we are going to give these horses time, we're going to back off of them. We're, we're not going to bring them along 
like the two-year-old guys do, we, we can buy horses that have mild and maybe even moderate sesamoiditis. Probably wouldn't do it if it was severe. I don't think I've ever seen severe sesamoiditis. I've seen mild and moderate. But because we are end users and are going to back off of these horses, give them a little time, we will buy those horses. Um, we can live with small OCD lesions in in joints that aren't critical, you know, like the upper joint of a knee or a stifle. Probably couldn't do an OCD lesion, especially if they were sizable in those places. But if, if you had a small OCD in an ankle or a hock, something like that, we could live with it. If we had, you know, another thing that sometimes creates opportunities, if we have a, a flake, a small chip, the problem chips are the ones that are embedded deep in the tissue. Those are a big surgery and the recovery time is long. But if you can find a small flake or chip that can be just plucked out easy as you please, we will buy those kinds and do the surgery and they're fine after. But if you're a pin hooker, you can't, you don't have time to do that, you know, so you've got to walk away from those horses. So we, we will live in those circumstances. Again, it, it's never really dead simple. It has to do with the size of, of the bone chip or flake. It has to do where it is in the soft tissue, and it has to do with what joint it's in. If it's in a fairly innocuous joint, it's on the top of the surface and it's small, we, we can buy that horse and, and get a good value. It's going to be cheaper, which is good for us. We look for those opportunities. Uh, and not add even, you know, I, I think we've also discussed it over, you know, numerous occasions, you know, if it, if it's a, a chip that's, that's smooth and rounded, it's been in there for a long time, obviously, because a, the, the, you know, versus a jagged chip that's new. I think you've learned a lot about vet issues over the years too. I think it sounds just like. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, that's, if it's jagged, if it's got sharp edges on it, that's generally an indication it's just happened. If it's uh, smooth and rounded and worn. And that, that's usually an issue though with, with the racehorses. If uh, we have a horse that's unsound, that has an issue uh, or, or some swelling, we'll take a look at it. And if the vet says it's it's causing them a problem, but it's been there for a while, let's just try to get through this, you know, uh, with some time off or something like that. But yeah, those are the size and shape of those will determine uh, what we do as well. I'm trying to think of some things we just won't live with. Big OCDs in bad places, upper knee joint, stifle, other things we, you know, obviously fractures, big chips, uh, multiple chips in in joints. We, we, we won't live with those. Uh, airways are a big thing too. That's that's part of the chain too. The horse could be great in every way, but it's it's got a bad throat. It's just a lost cause. The only leeway is the throats of these yearlings that we're looking at. They change as well. Ideally, I'm looking for a big throat, big as two barn doors that functions perfectly asynchronous, or synchronously. Um, that means they those flaps open for them to intake air uh, evenly. 
you know, it's like two barn doors and they open at the same time and they do it uh, and they retract fully. I, you know, I would prefer that when we're buying yearlings, just a, an ideal throat. Size-wise, we're not going to give up anything on those throats. We can get, we can, if it's not completely synchronous, if they're, if they are slightly asynchronous, we can live with that sometimes because that changes as they mature. We, we've seen that over the years. The, there's the A throat that is perfect. There's no problems with it. Then there's the one A throat that it might just be a little asynchronous. We can live with those sometimes. Anything below that, we're not going to mess around because they got to breathe if they're going to learn. Hi, everybody. So this is actually going to be the end of part one of our episode interview with Mark. Interesting story. We actually went very, 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 very far over time. I don't think we've ever had a well over hour and a half episode. So we are going to split it into two parts. So make sure that once you're done with this episode that you tune in next week for the second half of our interview with our racing manager and bloodstock agent, Mark Wampler.